This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Hey everyone, this is Chris Grasso with the Indie Spirituals Podcast, hosted on the Be Here Now Network. And today's show is going to be a little bit different. Um, To give you some backstory, in 2013 there was a documentary film that was being worked on regarding myself and another individual that unfortunately didn't come to see the light of day. Uh, But during that time, the production company had me doing several interviews with friends and family, um, just kind of getting backstory about myself, my journey. Uh, So that was 2013. Fast forward to about a week ago, I was cleaning my MacBook out and found this particular file, which I did not know uh, was still in existence. And it's a conversation I had with my longtime friend and uh, ex-bandmate, Daryl Toro, Um, We connected in 1993-ish for the first time and have been friends ever since. But I wanted to share this conversation because partly it tells a little bit about me through someone else's eyes, but it also talks a lot about uh, my friend Daryl, who also struggled with addiction, um, coming out as gay, um, especially in the punk rock hardcore scene. Uh, his struggles with living with that. Um, there there was just a lot of really raw vulnerability that I felt was absolutely worth sharing. It's mostly Daryl doing the talking, but um, I appreciate the fact that uh, for once I didn't have to do a lot of the talking. And I should mention that there is a YouTube video that I created um, because this was a video interview and there's a lot of accompanying pictures. I included um, some extra audio from the bands we talk about. So if you're interested in um, checking that version out after you check this version out, of course, simply scroll down if you're on the Be Here Now uh, podcast network page and there will be a link to the YouTube video there. And otherwise, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Thanks for checking it out. Let's start with how you and I met. We already were talking about that earlier a little bit, but let's talk a little bit about punk and hardcore bringing us together as buddies. Yeah, um, I believe like it was back, uh, I want to say in like 93, 90, no, like 94-ish, uh, when Studio 158 was having their shows, which was awesome because, like, 
you know, it was before the internet, so you had to get the little flyer of their show. I remember, like, and, you know, having the smallest print, you know, like, every show that they were having for, like, the next two months on this one little square. And uh, a lot of times you couldn't even tell where one show began and one show, you know. And, uh, like, so just... um, 158 was the first uh, club my mom would let me drive to, uh, you know, because it wasn't New Haven. Apparently, Wallingford was less scary, even though it was like the heroin capital of Connecticut. But, you know, just going there, and I remember seeing um, seeing you play with Claremont the first time, and that was back when, you know, like, all the bands that I really appreciated were like were more chaotic and a lot of what drew me to uh the hardcore and punk bands at the time was was just the fact that they would go off and like just go crazy you know and then no it it's like almost like you didn't hear the the noise you just heard the feeling if that makes sense like and um i just remember like seeing you play and you'd end up with, I don't even know if your bass would be on stage, but you'd end up in some weird contorted like position. And, uh, just, it was, it didn't matter if some, someone had a mic in front of them, they were screaming and they were part of the lyrics. And, and, and you heard, like you heard the bands like with your heart and not with your ears. And, so just going to those shows and I'm, and, you know, passing out zines. I, I had my own zine at the time and uh, going around trying to get everyone to, to spend a dollar on, on my photocopied manifesto of that month. And uh, we just kind of met through that and seeing each other at shows. Um, our, our groups kind of clashed at one point because of different uh political opinions um because we were all very very we all had the answer we all knew we were right but uh uh that created for good um i guess discourse uh um and we just met through going to shows i think the first time i've ever seen you perform was uh at studio 158 I remember you were playing, or not to you, I'm sorry, at CT Bike Exchange. And I remember you were playing bass, and you had, I don't even know what the pedal was hooked up to it, but you had a bass hooked up to a, a pedal, and I thought that was so cool. I don't know, for some reason, I hadn't seen it, you know, before I was like, dude, these, like, these guys are sick. And um, then after that, I didn't see much of you, although I do remember... Notice when you were around that I did notice you because I thought you were cute. So, um, but the the second time I really remember seeing you rock out was when you were playing for God's Burn, and that was at um, the Tune In. And I just remember you guys. Oh, I think you opened the show, but you guys just like ripped it, and I'm pretty sure your guitar was broken by the end of the set. And that's when I that's when I was like, I think I want him to play for Ground Zero. So. And so then I joined Ground Zero, and it wasn't that long after where you and I were sitting in a car smoking a bowl, 
before a show. Yeah. And I remember right up till the second you had lit the lighter, I didn't think you were going to do it because we've been joking about it for a while and you were straight edge yeah. and you had, you had smoked pot in the past, right? Many years ago. I think I, you know, I had Bill Clinton, like I did inhale, like when I was in eighth grade, I took two hits while uh, snowboarding with some friends up at the ski mountain and there was like 15 guys, one can like and like whatever they could fit in the can and passed around and maybe I got some I totally did not get high at all. But this show you did get high. Where we were Yeah. <laughs> What's your le- recollection of Oh that? dude, okay, so first off, I remember I was pissed at you because you had spent your you like, I got this weed with my Christmas bonus money and I was like it like I was like what the fuck, man? You should have spent the money on the band. Like, we've got demo tapes to buy, and, and you know, we've got T-shirts to make. And I remember we, we were actually up in uh, where is Massachusetts, Brockton, Massachusetts, and uh, we were playing with uh, a bunch of shitty bands. I think Coming Correct was playing. Punch the Clown was playing. Um, and we, at the time... I had no intention on breaking edge, like whatsoever. But I was getting into this phase of like, I'm, I'm punk as fuck. Like, you know, like, you know, don't tell me I can't do anything. I'm punk enough to do whatever I want to do. And I remember, uh, you know, my mindset was like, I'm, like you were like, whatever, dude, you're not going to smoke it. And I was like, yeah, I'm smoking. And in my mind, I'm like, I'm not really going to smoke it, but I'm going to pretend. You know, I don't know why, uh, but we ended up walking out there. I remember the I remember the walk out, and we're walking to the car, and you know the whole time I'm like I'm not really gonna do it. I'm not really gonna do it. And you had this little marble bowl. Yeah. You had it packed with some sweet nugs, some Christmas bonus nugs, and um, you hit it, and I still wasn't planning on hitting it at all, like at all. And I was like, I'm just gonna fake it. And, you know, so I took it, and I put it up to my mouth. It was still wet because you freaking, you all slobbered all over it when you took the hit. And I light it, and I put it, the flame to to the weed, and it was like, and, and I think I remember you saying, now suck in. And I was like, I don't know, how do you suck in, pretend to suck in? So I... I tried to pretend to suck it, and it was like, I remember the flame hit the weed, and the smoke went into my mouth, and and it was like, my my immediate recollection was, well, I'm no longer straight edge anymore, you know? And so I inhaled it, and I remember coughing like crazy, and you being like, yeah, yeah, man, yeah. (laughs) Like, and like, nothing happened. And so I passed back to you. You took another big friggin' hit. And um, then you passed it back to me. And I'm like, well, I'm not straight edge anymore, so I might as well do it again. Um, so I took another hit. And you're like, be careful. You know, it's, like, real strong. I'm like, whatever, dude. Whatever. Like, because, you know, I've never been a pothead before. So uh, I must know, you know, because I know everything. <laughs> like, right? Or at the time, I did. So I took another hit. 
nothing happened. And I remember being like, hey, I don't know why people waste their money on this stuff. I don't know, you know, well, I wish he needs to be freaking putting more money into the band, have more commitment to the band. And uh, nothing's happening. And you're like, all right. And then we were, had to play like in five minutes. And we're walking back and I'm like, I don't know why. I was like, I don't think it's kicking in. I was like, I don't know why anybody would waste their time with this. And we go in and I'm sitting at the merch table. Nothing's happening. And uh, then we had, every, you guys were setting up. And I'm sitting there and all of a sudden everything was like a broken television set. Just going just like this. And I'm like, is this it? I'm like, whatever, this isn't a big deal. And I was like, all right, it's time to go. The walk to the stage was like, I'm still on that walk to that stage. It was like 10 years. Like, it took me so long. And the stage was only this high. But for me, it was like trying to, like, get up on, like, a six-foot-high platform. And I got up there. And I remember you looking at me, and you had to smile because nobody else knew what we did. Nobody else knew what we had done except for me and you. And, like... You're like ready to play, you're ready to rock out. And I'm like, what are the lyrics to my songs? What are the lyrics to my songs? And then you guys started playing and every song sounded like, not the fast, like, and I go to start, and I'm still, the whole time, like, if I just scream, nobody will know that I'm not screaming the right lyrics, so it doesn't matter. And I remember screaming, and my face felt like it ballooned out like this. And all I could think of was the singer of Coalesce. Like, I must just sound like him, and, and maybe I look like him, and my cheeks are puffed out yeah. until I make it. And, uh, yeah. And then I remember in between, like, one song, or one of the songs being, like, coming over to you being like, I think this stuff's laced, like with acid. Like I knew what acid. Like I'd never done acid before, but for some it must be because I'm. I was. I was bugging out in my mind. Nobody else knew, but I was bugging out. And I remember coming over to you, like almost as if help. Like, like I don't like everything doesn't sound right. And you're like, it's cool, man. it's cool. Like, and so we got through that set, and then afterwards, I remember I got like. Like I was real stoned. I didn't. T- I think I told maybe uh, Andy or Ryan, one of them. And I was like, dude, I smoked pot, and like, you know. And then we, we got falafel. I, I remember getting two because I was like, there's no way one's gonna fill me up. And then I rode home, and I, the whole ride home from Brockton back to Connecticut, I was looking for my lost falafel in Taylor's car. I must have been. It's probably still there, but I could have possibly eaten. So that was my first time getting stoned. And so, let, let's let, let's take it from there. We, because I wasn't your last time getting stoned, obviously. Yeah. And I, I remember, if I remember correctly, Ryan and Andy, who were roadies at the time, were kind of bummed about all of that because they were straight edge. Yeah. But then we kept doing it, and then they ended up doing it at some point. Yeah. And then. And I remember I carried a lot of guilt uh, around after that because I, you and I smoked the bowl that time. And then, you know, there you were straight edge and then they started doing it. And then we all ended up having some pretty serious issues with drugs and alcohol in our own way. So I guess maybe 
let's walk through that a little bit. So after that first experience, what do you remember, like, as far as things progressing from there? Well, um, it was about a month or two later that Andy himself, he decided he wanted to just try it. And his sister had already been a big pothead. So uh, one night we came home from a, a show and like I hadn't smoked at all in between the, the, that, that time and the, this time right now that I'm talking about. And we asked his sister if, if she would let us uh, smoke some for weed. And uh, that was the night of learning bong heads, which I just could not understand. So I said, you light it and then you get it in there and then, and then you take it. Uh, carbs and bongs, that was at the second time. We did it and we smoked uh, that night. Ryan wasn't going to. And then after me and Andy were stoned and he was the last one out, I think he just followed suit and decided to try it. And from then on out, we were pretty much uh, potheads, um, like, for quite a few years. Uh, it went from, you know, I got my first bag of pot from you uh, that you sold. We had to drive all the way from Canton all the way out to East Haddam just to buy a little bit, which I'm, I, I hope you pinched. I you don't better remember have. that. Finder's <laughs> fee. Come on. I actually don't remember that well, at all. Uh, it was a long time ago. But, uh, yeah, so we started smoking and, and you know, we um, all like, started to... Like, I've always loved music, but, like, you know, being the fact that I was, like, 20 years old and, and first starting out, it was, like, at our, all of my music, all the music that I had loved and, and everything was already there. This was, like, rediscovering what I already loved. It was, like, now I can listen to everything hot, you know? Like, OK Computer was an awesome record. But you put in some headphones and you smoke weed and it's like, oh my God, friggin' you're a to totally different paranoid android, you know? Like, and so it just started off that like a lot of it was, it was a musical thing and, and just an appreciation and it started to open up, you know, like I wouldn't, ha when I was straight edge, I didn't hang out with people who weren't hardcore. This opened up an avenue, it was an avenue to where it broke down all other barriers so that someone who I didn't have anything in common with, as long as I had marijuana in common with them, you could spend five, ten minutes with someone and you'd actually might make a new friend or, or meet a new interesting person. And that, that, I, that really appealed to me as it went along. Um, the progression of getting into other drugs started with, you know, you meet a new, a new person that smokes weed. Well, you know, then they try, you know, then they're into this and that they might explain that, Oh, this makes that, you know, and that's, it's, I wouldn't even call it peer pressure. It was all about experimentation. And that first year I went from a total novice to an absolute expert. Like I tried everything within the first two years there wasn't anything other than heroin I hadn't tried. That and DMT was came right. We talked about the experimental stuff. Mm -hmm. 
let's talk about where things started to turn south with all of this. Yeah. Um, when the alcohol started becoming a lot more prominent in the picture. Um, I think let's start there. And then after that, we'll go into, I guess, some of your memories of me and my... We'll, we'll talk about both our bottoms, but... Okay. So let's start where, where it started to progress southward. Uh, I think it started to progress southward when um, Mel and Callie moved to Sisson. Uh, or not Sisson, but the other... Well, to Hartford. Um, and we had a place to go and, and get our party on. You know, it was, it was a central area, brought the whole group of us together. And we were kind of like a little tribe of, of, you know, people experimenting, like all artists and musicians. But um, we would get together and, and we'd have, you know, our nights where everybody would bring party favors. We'd have pills, we'd have our weed and... Um, at that time, drinking really wasn't my thing. Uh, I was more into pills and weed. Um, and we would just get together and you know, crank up freaking cable gutter clean and, and just be, and get fucked up. Like we would, you know, be crushing up the pills and, uh, having, uh, I remember Mel used to have the different size shot glasses that would go up to the dinosaur tranquilizer. And, um, and I, I think, I don't think I could ever make it up to the dinosaur tranquilizer. I was, you know, I was a wimp. Um, uh, we would just get together and, and, you know, at the time I was working at Party City, so I would steal Christmas lights and we would, the whole house would be decorated with fun stuff to look at while you're totally trashed. And we'd play video games like Wipeout. Tony Hawk's Pro Skater first came out. And uh, just order pizza and just get wasted. You know? Um, that's, and it became a regular thing. I think probably because it was a safe place for, I know for myself, but to escape from uh, being at home, you know, to escape from the fact that, that we were kind of at the turning point of, of going into adulthood. And, um, you know, none of us really knew where we wanted our lives to go. We know we wanted to pursue our art in whatever facet it would be, whether, you know, it was Kelly's painting and, you know, um, all of the guys that were in the band. And I think our biggest thing was we'd get together, we would do drugs and we would drink, you know? And because all of us were so supportive of each other, it was, it felt safe to, to get together and, and, and to, to bounce ideas. This is what I want to do. And this is what we should do. And, and we want to, we want to take our lives this way. And we want to take our lives in that direction. You know, it felt real. It felt like it could all happen. You know, it felt like it all was going to happen. Um, I think part of it felt like it all was going to happen because we were all that ambitious. But I think the other part of it feeling like it was going to happen was because we were fucked up and we were dreamers. And we had elaborate dreams that were made even more elaborate by the substances that we were consuming. 
So for me, my memory of all of it, it you know, I, I left Ground Zero. Oh, Chris, I, you want to tell that story of my last show with Ground Zero that never happened? That still will open for? Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, I do. Let's, because my memory is after I left Ground Zero, I went on to Three Ways Till Tuesday, and I think we were we were still friends, but we weren't really talking much at that point. And for me, it was it was in that place where things got really, really bad, and then I moved to Sisson with Mel, and that's where things just went to a whole nother level of bad. The angel dust was coming in, and Kay, and so, yeah, maybe if you want to talk about that, that's still well ground zero. Uh, when when you did Stillwell, um, which was like your own project, um, I know that me and Pete, who is a guitarist of of Ground Zero, we felt that like you know you were just trying to do your own thing. There was there was like jealousy or or whatnot. But at the same time, like with all my friends' bands, like I always wanted to help. You know, I was always about help. You know, helping local my local musicians. So I remember I got you guys on that show, and um, it 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 was that it was that place in Hartford, and uh, you guys went on, and you were trashed. You were trashed when you got there. I know that you ended up like slamming something either falling into a reach from Hunter Demon's car, and he was already ready to kick your ass. Uh, you came into the show, you were late. You guys set up. Um, everyone in the band had this kind of attitude of, like, whatever, you know, fuck you guys, we're too punk, you know, we're, we're punk as fuck, so we don't care what people think. We don't care if the show runs on time. But you guys started playing, and you were like going around with the microphone, and it was very GG out. Like, and my at the time, my biggest fear was is that what he's doing is going to reflect on what I'm doing because he's my guitarist, and. You, you were going around, I know that you slapped Rob's girlfriend, uh, Rob, who is a guitarist for Dead Eyes Under. Um, you grabbed uh, Eric Newkirk, um, you grabbed his shirt and you ripped his shirt off, which he had a groundwork uh, shirt that like could not be replaced and everyone was bummed about that. I'm pretty sure you spit in somebody's face and you were just going around and just, it, I mean, it was very a la Gigi Allen, but nobody was looking for Gigi Allen that night and nobody was looking for Chris Gigi Allen. So that, that in turn, I mean, we just kind of like, I was like, you know, can't have this. And, and, you know, basically it, it ended up turning out to be like, you know, I'm not going to have this guy be a representation of my band. And, and I, was, I was pretty upset with you um, because there was there was times before where you had, had played shows and gotten too drunk and 
would be like we'd be playing a quiet part and you'd be tuning your guitar like in the middle of it like like open tuning just to be like this nice guitar part that repeatedly playing and you'd hear Chris tuning you know and so it, you know that at that point I know I know Pete was like it's either him or me and you know Pete was way better guitarist than you so <laughs> it was definitely that um I remember being upset with Mel because he was just uh, guilt by association. Uh, we kicked him out of Wrenching Orcs at the time. Uh, we, we then made amends with him. And I know it took a while for, um, for me to feel comfortable with you again. Um, but there was, you know, there was a lot of distance also. Just We ran, our scenes interconnected, but they were also separate entities. So... You know, it, we saw each other sparse, you know, sparsely. And when you started Three Ways to Tuesday, I mean, I, we were supportive of it. You know, by then there wasn't any hard feelings. We were, our, our group of friends were, were pretty good for the most part about getting over stuff. Some stuff takes longer than others. Like when you leave people in New Orleans, it takes, it takes a little bit longer. But we always, we always get over it. So, for me, that's one of my worst memories because it, you know, it did put a, it stifled our friendship a bit. It's fine. Um, but you and I were talking when last year when you were driving me up to uh, one of the workshops I was doing, and you said some stuff that I didn't realize, even through your eyes, it had gotten that bad. You had said something to the effect of, I, I basically was just waiting for you to die or something mm-hmm. like that. Like, you, you, it was just a matter of time for yeah. you. And I don't, I don't remember a lot of that. So can you talk about your experience of like yeah. that? Um, well, it gives me chills just thinking about it. Um, yeah, when you were living with Mel at SIS, um, just uh, hearing about like the knives, um, you were you were always you always seemed to like to need to have some sort of knife around. Um, all of your guitars would always have uh, something negative uh, carved in them. Um, and just the, the drug use, you were hanging out with certain friends of ours back then that were getting into heroin uh, and, and the angel dust smoking and everything. And, and you know, just driving in general I mean, you you like you would have so many bottles of empty, you know, huge bottles of vodka everywhere, no matter where you went. And I I later turned into having the same collection of bottles. Um, but just I figured, you know, you would kill yourself one of these times. I figured, uh, like. That you would eventually get into a car accident. You, you did a lot of traveling for that amount of drinking. It's not like you were just drinking at home. You driving all over Connecticut to go to work, to go to shows and stuff. And um, I, I just figured there, it just seemed like it was a matter of time until one of those things would happen. Um, 
I think that happens with anyone that you see that gets out of control with, with any sort of drug. It's like you, if they're not going to get clean, then then there's really only one other option. You know, no nobody takes it to that extreme, and uh, and all of a sudden great things happen because of that. You know, um, there's so many ways that a person can die throughout the day. When you're drinking that much, it opens you up to the possibility of anything. I mean, you have always had or had the attitude, or always did have the attitude that you didn't give a shit about somebody else harming you. You know, and it was almost you, you, you um, embraced other people's negativity towards you as if, come get me, come, you know, come do, come do it for me, like. You know, like, and and that's kind of what I saw. Is it was just you, if you didn't somehow cut yourself with a knife to and bleed out, that someone in a store might bump you the wrong way, and the ego that was running so so much of all of our lives at the time would have been like, "All right, motherfucker, bring it," and. They could have brought it and brought you down with it, you know? And so, you know, you mentioned that you ended up going down that road later on. Can you talk a little bit about your descent into, like you said in the beginning, wasn't so much alcohol, you are more into marijuana and, and uh, pills. But then later on it became, like, I remember, I remember that role being reversed because I would get clean. I, I would go through cycles of getting clean and relapsing, but I remember my clean times seeing you and seeing myself in you and how much that scared me. So can you talk a little bit about your experience? Yeah. Um, I guess, like, I was in the closet for so long and, um, like, I didn't want, there's so many reasons why I was afraid to come out of the closet. Um, but I remember that uh, around, I want to say 2001, um, the band I was in at the time, Emmanuel Seven, um, we had come home from a tour that just had, had not gone very well. And we were, I was using a lot of, um, a lot of anti-anxiety drugs and, I got home and I started to, to have a lot of paranoid delusions. A lot of them were about everyone knows I'm gay. Like everyone knows I'm gay. And, you know, and, and everybody, and somebody's out to get me or something bad is going to happen. I remember distinct, distinctly making the decision one day that I'm just going to drink. And if I drink, I can't be held accountable for my actions because I'm drunk and I can't be blamed. And so I'll just drink and that'll help me feel comfortable enough to function. And so that's what I started to do. And I, and I would drink. I never, I never drank for fun. I never drank to, I never went out and drank. I never went to bars. I never drank on occasions. I would just drink by myself to get myself 
out in public. It was it was literally like my shield. It's like nothing can penetrate me if I'm this pickled, I guess. You know? And it started with Jägermeister because I had enough money to, to uh, afford it. And then it, you know, it went down to to Bukov and, and Dubra. And that was that was literally my drug of choice. Everything else was, you know, was the soda to the pizza party. The pizza party was Dubra. You know, like, and I would just, and I, I would mix it with Gatorade. I would literally have half vodka, half Gatorade, and I would drink it all day. And I would just, I would be numb. I would anesthetize myself from feeling any of the fear about not being able to uh, do what I wanted to do with my life and, and definitely the fear of people knowing that I was gay. And the descent, I mean, it was it was just there. It was it, it, it didn't because I, I never drank, I didn't go out to parties and drink and and then come back and get normal, you know, and take days off. From that day forward I drank every day. And I drank every day as my security blanket to get through the day. No matter what I had to do, I I had to drink. Because I was so scared that people would somehow know me know the real me as if the real me was something to be ashamed of which it's not you know the premise of this film is about finding freedom and that's a big umbrella a lot of things can fall under that so in your case you struggled you know living in the closet with being gay can you talk a bit about your experience of coming out of the closet and any sense of freedom or liberation um, that may or may not have happened as that happened for you? Um, yeah, the I didn't come out of the closet, unfortunately, until I was 32 um, in, a, in a band that was, I, I didn't want the music that we were making to be labeled as gay. I didn't want the, the band to be held back by my sexual orientation. <clears throat> so I, I just figured it, it wasn't anything that needed to be, to bring up. And I didn't, I didn't realize that, that not being out of the, uh, that not being open about, that part of me was so damaging. Um, but when I, when I was closeted, a lot of my life, a lot of my inner, inner dialogue was, does this person know? Or am I acting gay? Am I acting this way? You know, constantly worrying about if... Is my nat is the way I'm being somehow putting off a bad uh, representation of myself? And, and in a way, it was because it wasn't a true representation of myself. When I when I finally came out, um, it was in 2010, and um, I had just gone to Bear Week. And uh, there I saw, I mean, there was 10,000 men that were, you know, 
men. They weren't big uh, queens, and and you know they, they weren't. They were they were they were men like how I envisioned. They were comfortable with their sexuality and their masculinity. And in that, I found freedom because it's like, I am masculine. And my sexuality is what it is. And there's no shame in that. And so when I got back, I remember just being like, you know what? It's time for me to be you know, myself and, and, you know, I, I found freedom to look at life through eyes that aren't worried of what other people think. You know what I'm saying? It's like RuPaul says, you know, like, unless they pay in your bills, doesn't matter, you know, you know, I don't have to worry about what they think. Like what they think he doesn't mean anything else. You, know? you can't love yourself, how the hell are you gonna love somebody else? And so the freedom of loving myself has come from first off meeting my husband and, and, and finding someone that, that loves me for who I am. Like who like truly loves the good and the bad, the glitter and the grit, you know? And um yeah, coming out, like, has been a huge, uh, it was an accomplishment for me that, you know, I wish I had done sooner. Like, I I feel like my 20s, they weren't wasted, but they weren't, uh, they weren't full. Because I wasn't let, allowing myself to be full. And um, without being in the closet, I didn't have, need a, a reason to hide. So I didn't need the alcohol. And being able to uh, have Adam and support me. And, and, and when I started to come out, everyone was like, whatever. Like, oh, you, oh you're gay? Okay. That's... that's you know, we're also in a different time, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, being gay was not easily as accepted. Nowadays, it's, it's kind of in fashion, you know, so I came out right around the time when it was hit, but you know, I usually am a little bit ahead of my time. <laughs> but as far as the alcohol goes, you know, I didn't need it anymore. I didn't need to hide. And it, it became just kind of like a leftover um, byproduct of, of the, the hiding that I was doing in my life before. And therefore, like, you know, when me and Adam got married, I mean, I knew I wasn't going to be able to drink for my whole life if I wanted my life to be longer than <laughs> a couple more years. And so having that freedom of being able to be myself no matter what myself is, as long as, as I'm, as long as my intentions are pure, then I don't need something to hide behind. And that's been very freeing. But for me, the most enlightening and inspiring aspect of it was the fact that you wrote it 
and that the fact that you, that you saw it through it. And I'm sure that the, there's fear. I'm sure that you have fear, but to me, all I see is fearlessness because that book is out there. Yeah. So, okay. So let, let's talk a little bit about that. Um, because here we both were in terrible places in our lives. You know, you thought I would, could die at any time. I remember like Mel and a few of us not knowing what to do about you. But then you and I have also talked about Mel not knowing what to do with them. It's just the circle we've all gone through. But right now, today, we're on the other side of that. So there's something to really be said for that. So maybe I guess let's talk a little bit about coming out of the other side, which you've already talked a little bit about yourself and how incredible it is you don't feel the need to drink anymore because you're free to be you, which is beautiful. So, yeah, I guess, um, why don't you tell me how, how awesome I am because I wrote a book. Well, I mean, your book sucks. <laughs> but I'm gay, so I agree sucking is usually a good thing. Oh. No, I'm just kidding. No, um, I think that your book... I love the fact that you wrote your book because it, it, it shows me that, you know, if, if you believe in yourself, then you should share it with people. And, you know, not enough, like I, I said before, you know, the, the best part about your book and the most enlightening thing for me personally, because I know you, is the fact that you wrote it. And it showed me that, you know, you don't need some, you don't need some other person who has a title or who has this supposed merit to tell you it's okay to do something that, that you are passionate about. And, you know, no, it, nobody was like, oh, yeah, Chris, you need to write a book. You went out, you had something to share with people, and you went through the steps, and, and, you, and, you, and you did it. You wrote the book, and, and you put it out. And it's a wonderful book. Um, I think that truth is in every person. And I think that part of like what we're here for is to share that truth in whatever medium it be. And it does, you know, it can be anything from writing a book or writing a song or planting a garden or helping someone else, you know, volunteering. Truth is universal. When we use that to facilitate positive things in the world, then, you know, I think that it makes the world a better place. With your book, it inspires me because it shows me that here is a person that I saw literally holding hands with death. Go from that to here. I have 
life in my hand, let me give it to you. And, you know, that's that's why I love your book. You know, and that's why I love what you do with anti-spiritualists. And, and I think that, you know, every person has the capacity to make the world a better place. It doesn't have to be something big, you know, and it doesn't matter if it's something small, just as long as it's pure. And as long as it's, and, and we all we all have inside of us, we have a moral compass that tells us this is right and this is wrong. If you see someone who who is thirsty, give them a glass of water, you know? If you see someone who's confused, help them to at least find their own way of not being confused. Yeah, just love. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.